Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. St John's Cathedral is these days dwarfed by the surrounding buildings, but for decades towered over the neighbourhood as the Anglican Church built in 1849. Stuart Wolfendale recently wrote a history of the cathedral and over the next two programmes tells me about its bishops, service to the community, the Second World War and beyond. But this week we start by sitting in the sunshine in the grounds of the church, an oasis of tranquillity. Yes, it is. It's surprisingly quiet given its its setting and that is unusual. It's particularly interesting inside the church too because you'd think that a great deal of noise would come in from Garden Road and all the traffic roaring up and down. And yet at the quietest moments of the service, when there's total silence at some critical moment, you hear barely anything. Although I don't think many people know this, the cathedral is the, the, the organisation responsible for the peak tram not coming all the way down to Central. Uh, when it was originally built in the late 19th century, the cathedral authorities objected to it going past the windows in case it disturbed services. So that's why it stops, uh, where it stops at St John's Building. <laughs> yeah, so of course the peak tram was 1888. And uh, when was St John's set up? Um, it was opened in 1849. It, it was Construction was started in 1847. It took about two years. And it, it was opened in mid-1849. First service was, was then, yes. It was consecrated in 1852. Uh, uh, the, the gap is because there were still bills to be paid on the church, and you can't consecrate a church if it's still in debt. Uh, it's, it's a rule at Anglican Church. <laughs> so the actual consecration that makes it makes it absolutely dedicated to God and no other purpose, that, that action didn't take place until a bit later. Yeah. This church was planned even before the, uh, before the congregation was even in Hong Kong. Uh, yes, yes, it was. It was it was conceived of um, before then, uh, because they foresaw a need for it uh, as as the uh, as, as the colony was, was was coming into view. They saw a need for it, and it was planned by by a group of uh, basically what you call taipans, I suppose. Now, some of the big uh, the, the big traders of the time, the big free, uh, uh, freelance traders like Jardine and Matheson and Dent and people like that, uh, all the all the big names. They 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 formed a provisional committee. To get to get the thing off the ground, and uh, also to to battle with the uh, the secretary for the colonies, secretary of state for the colonies back in London, through the governor for money, money, money. <laughs> that was it. Did they get any? Uh, with the oh yes, they got it. They got it with the struggle. Yes, they got they got a kind of a uh, a fifty fifty deal. You know, we'll match you dollar for dollar. You raise a dollar, we'll pay for a dollar. That was ge- that was generally the government side. It, it didn't stick out. It didn't end up quite like that. But that was a general principle. Yes. Yeah. Now, after Hong Kong's colonisation in 1841 by Britain, um, what, uh, in terms of the buildings that were planned and built, where does St John's Cathedral come into that? I mean, does it follow the prison and the the, the army garrison? Uh, oh, it, it's it's very early, actually. It, uh, it, it, if I'm right, I think it precedes Government House. Uh, it follows Flagstaff House, which is now the Teaware Museum in the in in the park at Hong Kong Park. Uh, but it's between those two, and it's it's very early. The garrison had very little in the way of uh, of regular buildings in those early days. They lived in mat sheds and caught all sorts of fevers and malaria as a result. Um, so this this was quite a substantial building, and and and, the, and one of the earliest, yes. Now, picking up where you talked about the fever and the malaria, that was also a sad aspect about reading about the congregation and the choir in the 19th century, is that nobody was immune to some of the diseases here. No, nobody was immune. People got carried off at quite young ages, actually. There were young boy choristers and uh, all, all sorts of people could, could easily be, uh, be killed. And... Uh, by disease, 
uh, the the tablets on the walls were a very sad testimony to, to this uh, around the church walls uh, to how people could die um, not even in childbirth in childhood but but also quite young young mothers and and fathers the tablets unfortunately aren't there anymore they were taken down during the Japanese occupation and uh, and disposed of uh, one or two still remain in the chapel of remembrance in the uh, in the Protestant cemetery in Happy Valley, and they were moved there, but not many. The rest were destroyed. It's a pity. I'm here with Stuart Wolfendale at St John's Cathedral talking about his book, Imperial to International, A History of St John's Cathedral, Hong Kong. And while a man sweeps around us, <laughs> so it's nice to see all the leaves cleared up on this lovely day with blue sky. And uh, we're surrounded, obviously, by far taller buildings these days. But when it was first constructed, St John's would have, for decades, probably been the tallest building in this area. Yes, it was. Um, you could, on the older photographs of Hong Kong, you can see quite prominently uh, from from pretty well most angles actually uh, and uh, then the uh, of course the high rises came in and uh, and Chen Kong came and uh, that that uh, that kind of blocked it out but uh, it was fairly prominent however there was a particular period when the you talked about the man sweeping the leaves here uh, the, the garden had far more trees and ferns in it uh, all, all around and uh, there was a point in the early 20th century when somebody complained that you could be standing yards from the cathedral and not even see it. There was a positive jungle around here. There's far too much foliage. <laughs> far too much foliage. They, re they reduced it eventually. Uh, there was always a fight, actually, always a fight going on between the cathedral and the Hong Kong government as to who was responsible for maintaining the compound. Mm. And, uh, and so how, are, how good are you on the surrounding flora? Oh, hopeless. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> That's a tree and the man's got some leaves. I, I, I do mention some flora in the, in the book, actually, but it's only because it was laid out in front of me in the reference works, I'll tell you. <laughs> Worship began in 1849, and the people who worshipped here were a mixture of the uh, civilian uh, expatriate, as we call them now, the colonial class, uh, civilian, and the military. Uh, this was a garrison church as well in its way, and so there were what were called parade services on Sunday mornings uh, at various times during its history, uh, up to about the 1950s, really. And, uh, and so there, there was a mixture. Yeah. And of course, uh, for many decades at its outset, it would have been Europeans only. Um, yes, it, it wasn't actually restricted to Europeans by, by any kind of rule. That would have been quite unchristian and impossible to do. But in fact, it was very much a Europeans only because it was the services were held in English and it had a very uh, expatriate feel to it, of course. Uh, but Chinese did come and worship here from time to time. Uh, some individual Chinese uh, did actually worship here. Uh, there were also services held here on great state occasions, uh, back in Britain, that is, funerals of monarchs and coronations of monarchs and anniversaries of the Queen Victoria, when you would actually get a special uh, congregation of Chinese, and, the, and these services would be held in Cantonese. So that, that it wasn't really totally exclusive. It was no apartheid, you know. It, was, <laughs> it wasn't quite like that. And a third of the seats were reserved for what were called the poor, <laughs> which could mean anybody, really. It could mean poor white people. There were poor white people in Hong Kong. We mustn't forget that. There were poor Europeans. Not everybody was a Taipan. 
when we have buildings that are more than a century old or even in this case over 150 years old I I have I must say I'm at fault because I always think oh well, they've been here forever and they were always fine but when we look actually at the University of Hong Kong over a century it had real problems in its early years and it's it's amazing that it's still standing um, in terms of money to fund it in the same way with St John's it struggled and it had a, a major benefactor Yes, it did. Uh, it, it had many, many benefactors, but one was particularly significant was Sir Paul Chater um, in the 1920s, who uh, gave a large amount of money to St. John's Cathedral and to St. Andrew's Church in Kowloon, um, which he actually attended more than he came here. In fact, he really didn't attend here at all. But he was a great benefactor generally in Hong Kong, and he saw himself as, as his duty to help out. And the church was actually quite poor. And without Chater, for example, and without other people along the way too, coming in at opportune moments, then, um, you know, the roof would have fallen in long ago. <laughs> Things like that would have, in fact, we were never rich in any sense like that in the 19th, 20th, early 20th century. Now, within the church itself, you did have some certain ways, of course, that the congregation donated, but there was also a bit of controversy over pew rents. Oh yes, pew rents. That, 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 that was from the days when we ba basically pews were rented out uh, to, to people for a month. There we go. Uh, it's working. And uh, they were rented out uh, at, at various different prices. But the point was, uh, your status was very important to, to the Victorians particularly. And uh, your status was measured by how close you, your pew was to the, to the chancel and to the, to the pulpit. The further up the church, the higher rank you were, and, and um, that's that, that, that's how you were they were allocated according to status. I'm sure John Betjeman wrote a poem about that. Uh, he would have definitely <laughs> written a poem. He would have known about pure rents, absolutely, or sittings as they were called. It was quite outrageous, really. Uh, it was it was it was a rank structure, literally all the way down the nave, you know, uh, and the the big jo the big hongs and the important and wealthy individuals in the colony got to sit up front and pay the price for it, uh, and it was finally abolished in 1930. This church has seen long service over a century and a half. It's difficult because there's been any number of deans and bishops, but yeah. could you sort of highlight a couple perhaps? There, there, there have been several. The thing about bishops here is that they had two jobs. They were the Bishop of Hong Kong, but they were also a bishop of this huge diocese, which in those days covered all of China, from an Anglican point of view anyway. The Emperor of China didn't know about that, but from the Anglicans. And, uh, and so they were torn between going up there, doing stuff, and staying in town and being here for us. So it, it, you, saw more, you, you saw some more than you saw others. Bishop Burden was an interesting bishop. He was uh, in the late 19th century. He had a chair with, with uh, uh, was it now four or, or, uh, four or eight carriers, chair carriers, all dressed in oh, red. No. All yes, it's quite well known that. <laughs> they, you have to understand that everybody had a chair and a, and, 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 and carriers. They, they all did. It was, this, this, this compound here, if I might digress for a second, this compound here uh, at a major service would have sedan chairs all lined up all around the building waiting for people to come out after the end of the service and, and, and the boys, in quotes, sort of sitting there cross-legged or smoking and sitting there. <laughs> it was a great sight. But he was one of them. The, the most prominent bishop, I think, that everybody would agree that we had was Bishop R.O. Hall, uh, who was bishop from 1933 to 1966, 30-odd years, including the war years when, fortunately, he happened to be out of Hong Kong with the Japanese invaders, so he wasn't captured. He was a brilliant man. He was a deeply spiritual man and incredibly vigorous. And one of the things he did, several of the things he did, was to actually spawn 
many of the social welfare volunteer and, and government social welfare organisations uh, that, that we now have uh, in Hong Kong around about before the war and just after the war. He, he, he inspired a lot, of, a lot of that work. A very, very brilliant man, very bouncy guy, very, very open and vigorous and ascetic at the same time. Uh, he gave up he gave up the bishop's house to live in. He turned it over to his offices and he gave part of it to the dean and lived on a farm in Sha Tin. <laughs> Kept goats. Man was delightfully eccentric. Uh, uh, so we've had some interesting bishops, yes. The style of this 19th century building is neo-Gothic, but can you tell me about the architecture, the builders, what it was made of? The stone was quarried in Canton. The wood in the ceiling, beautifully crafted ceiling, very classical, simple, neo-Gothic. Uh, that is Manila. Uh, Manila tea, uh, and so a lot of it's been replaced since then in one way or another, but they, these are the basic elements. The, um, the architect, yes, that's an interesting question. That's a mystery too, a bit. Um, I won't go into all the details and the backwards and forwardsing that went on in terms of documents and papers because in those days things got very confused coming across by ship before telegraph and, and, and people crossed messages. But what we can gather is that probably... The original plan was done by a man called Philip Hardwick in England, who supplied them to the Bishop of London, who tended to be responsible for colonial churches in those days. And Philip Hardwick uh, was a quite a distinguished architect in his time, but in fact it had to be amended. The plan didn't fit on the ground that well. And there's a lot of shillying and shallying about it, but basically credit should go to a man called uh, Charles Cleverley, uh, Charles Cleverley was the government's uh, chartered surveyor, the government surveyor, who also designed and built government house, the original government house, not this one. Um, and Cleverley would like to have heard him being credited because he was a tremendous egotist. <laughs> and at the end of the day, he got down to it with a couple of chaps out of his office and rearranged the design to fit. My thanks to Stuart Wolfendale. Next week, I learn what was lost and saved from the cathedral during the Second World War, how its congregation was interned, but also how after the war there was a sense of change which led to more openness, and also how the cathedral was years ahead of the UK in ordaining women priests. Thanks for listening, and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>